Constructed Criticism is sponsored by Oasis Games. MTGOasis.com is the place to get cards for your next Magic event. Try them out with code CCMTG for 15% off of your first order, and use the code WouldThatBeGood for 4% off of every order. Want to support the show directly? Head on over to Patreon.com CCMTG to check out some awesome benefits and future goals for the show. Thanks for listening, and here's this week's episode of Constructed Criticism. Hello everyone and welcome to the Constructed Criticism Network. This network is here to help you improve in Magic the Gathering at every level. From popper leagues to top 1000 mythic, we've got you covered. If you want to hear the entire network, head on over to our sponsor at puremtgo.com where you can hear each and every show, each and every week, and check out their sponsor, MTGO Traders, and tell them that the CCMTG Network sent you. Now sit back, enjoy the show, from YouTube, podcasts, and more, here's this week's episode from ConstructedCriticism.com. Hello everyone, welcome to the 386th episode of Constructed Criticism. I am your fully recovered host, Mason, joined by my two swaggy co-hosts, Spencer and Abe. Boys, how you doing? I am also fully recovered. I was dying. I don't know if people noticed on the last episode. And yesterday, I just woke up feeling better. Like, like nothing had ever been wrong. So, it feels good. Hear it. Abe, you just don't get I got sick? My, I got my COVID-19 booster shot yesterday, and so I'm actually feeling a little under the weather still. <laughs> uh, like a, a little on and off headache situation now. I've been drinking a bunch of water to really get through but yeah so so we we traded off this week but okay okay so abe can't give us the the three-person good vibes podcast this week he had to i mean my vibes are always pretty good i think i'm actually my vibes are starting to get harsh now that i feel like you don't think my vibes are good (laughs) he he had to go and do his civic duty and now has a headache you know it's it's worth it it, it well, it sounds like a reason not to get the third booster. Anyways, oh, wow. uh, <laughs> that's just a joke. That's a joke. If you don't get the third shot, uh, anything can stop you. But no, seriously, get your third shot. Today, we are going to be talking about how to build a sideboard guide. Those going to be pretty exciting. That way, you don't ever have to actually pay us for content ever again. Once this is done, you won't need to pay us. You won't need to pay anyone at any websites that involve stars or towns. So it's going to be super great. So we're excited to do that for you. But first, we do need to do always improving. It is the point of the show. If we're not getting better, we're getting worse. And Spencer, it's your time to start with your always improving segment. Uh, yeah, I'm happy to go. Uh, so this week was, I was sick for most of the week. But I made a pretty active effort this week in Magic. And I did it in a couple of ways. And I found myself improving in a couple of ways. And I'd like to kind of highlight some of them. So first of all, uh, what can you do when you're sick if you want to participate in the, the magics? And I actually found myself playing mobile a lot this week, like just laying in bed and playing mobile. And while it's not the best experience, I actually got the opportunity to kind of learn a lot about Mono White, the Mono White Mirror and things like that. Uh, and it was really fun, something that I did not expect to be able to do. But I think the Mono White actually does lend itself pretty easily to be played on mobile. And funnily enough, I actually found that blue-black also was a really good deck to play on mobile. Because um, you don't actually have to hold priority or, or anything with that deck very often. You basically... like Because you're, when you're double-spelling, it's usually... If you're going to hold priority, you have already won the game with like a hole breaker or whatever. So so it was interesting to like get to participate in the game while being pretty sick and like just laying on my bed sideways with my phone. Because like typically I would just play on my laptop, but I, I was so sick that I didn't want to do that. But additionally to that, other than like, you know, 
kind of just getting reps in and finding ways to do it. And I also put a question out on Twitter that I want my relationship with magic to be content creation. Um, I'm, I'm kind of not at a point in my life where I can go back to, you know, going to multiple GPs a year and, and you know, grinding nonstop RBQs. Like I want to play one case, make magic sustainable for myself and then share my learnings with people and help them get to the pro tour. And so I asked Twitter to send me their favorite gameplay creators, not. Oh, I forgot to send you mine. I just remember you, you did forget. I was I'm actually going right to call you out. Right now. I'm doing, yeah, I'm I was going right to call now. you out. Hang on, hang on. I'm doing now, it right now. Keep this, right now. Keep this no, in. Keep... Editor, keep this in. Uh, no, 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 no. I'm going, going, going right now. <laughs> it didn't happen. But, you know, it was interesting to kind of hear people's responses to that. And I think that one of the things that it made me understand, like, I watched a bunch of um, CGB. I watched a bunch of... I watched like a lot of gameplay videos across the board, whether it was best of one people, streamers, YouTube videos. And something that I have found is the the thing that I would be looking for in a gameplay experience on YouTube or on a website is does not currently probably exist to the masses. And it's possible that people are just more interested in that that best of one memeing style of of gameplay but it it was interesting to kind of consume content look at okay are there things that even though this isn't directed towards me i can take from and look at like in 2022 build how i want gameplay to to play out in my videos one of the reasons that i've been thinking about that is like you know as as we go into 2022 we have more uh, events i want to have gauntlet matches between my co-hosts where if we disagree on a matchup, I'll just throw the gauntlet like, Hey, we're going to play it on video and, and see who's right. And in order to do that, I want to make sure that we are producing the type of content that actually helps us and, and the the viewer. So it, it was interesting to like view a lot of magic content that I have not viewed before. Like I've, I've actually never watched uh covert go blue before. And I think he might be the biggest YouTuber now. I didn't check. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't check Outside professors' numbers. Yeah. I was gonna say I didn't check the professors' numbers, but I was like, this is, these are insane numbers. He makes more money than professor, but has less subscribers right now. Okay. Yeah, that yeah. that makes some sense. So yeah, that's kind of what I did. Kind of both preparing myself for the podcast and also looking towards the future and consuming lots of magic content to kind of coalesce into a. What what will magic be to me next year? Kind of thing as we kind of wrap up this year. That's awesome. That ties pretty well into mine. So I'm going to actually take the lead here, Abe. Even though you're supposed to be next up. Uh, by the way, Spencer, I DM'd you two on Discord right now. If you want to read the first one out to the chat, that way they can. Do you sent me the video you just posted to YouTube. Oh, did I? Was that me? I just I, was watching I, it. Uh, here, the algorithm. Weird. I could never have guessed what Mason was going to send me. <laughs> the algorithm. I was just like. Wow, what a great video! <laughs> no, but uh, the second one was the serious one. Okay, uh, I think I think that person is underrated when they do them, and they have like forty minute videos and ten minutes to kind of do it where they think it's best. So awesome, there's some good stuff there with her. Thanks, uh, I really appreciate Schlizzle, that. By the way, you're welcome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, yeah. I really meant to send you her videos. I just forgot. So yeah, and to the listeners, real quick before Mason goes, if you do have a favorite creator who is making gameplay content, please send them my way. I actually want to watch it. Guys, you don't have to send him uh, me. I'm already here. So just like, you know, just message him. Let him know, like, yeah, obviously Mason, but also this person. 
No, but uh, it's interesting because I actually, uh, I've thought a lot about like YouTube content and I really want to do it in a lot of ways. And so my always improving moment was actually kind of like planning out exactly what I wanted to do, which is funny because I didn't talk to Spencer about this. We both, I mean, like I saw Spencer's tweet, uh, but I was already thinking about this like before that. It was kind of something I'm thinking about since Vegas. And it was like, how do I want to do things? Like how often I want to upload? Because to me, I had this real struggle internally, which I'll air on the show here a little bit because it's part of my was improving, where it's like part of me really, really enjoys teaching and coaching and that sort of thing. And that's like why I do this. It's why I offer coaching and magic. It's why I love talking about the games and that sort of thing because it's kind of like that sort of thing. And so having content towards that is really good. Another part of me really enjoys things that are more creative and unique on YouTube. Like I really want to do game shows with magic. Like, like I have a lot of stuff in the works to like do like a jeopardy style game show on magic and do that sort of thing. And who wants to be a millionaire and stuff like that. And so I had this real struggle because it's like, those are obviously very polar opposites of the spectrum. You know what I mean? And ultimately I decided that even though the polar opposites, why do I have to pick one? Like, it doesn't really matter. You know what I mean? Like, I kind of do and play magic and do all this sort of stuff for my own internal reward, my own satisfaction. That's, like, one of my biggest strengths, I feel, as a player is that, like, I play for my own validation, for my own goals. I'm working towards these things. And while it's nice to get recognized and it's cool over the last week to hear my name come up in content about money pile and stuff like that, the satisfaction I got for knowing I played well enough to make top eight of a Grand Prix was much better than any of that. So it's like, okay, well, just make the content you want to make. And that means like putting out the gameplay stuff and the educational stuff right now and just doing that while we work towards these bigger like who wants to be a millionaire, these are production things and kind of coming to terms with and relearning that sort of thing and applying it in other areas of my life. So that was my always improving moment was taking this lesson I already kind of learned and internalized, but just applying it to a new area, even though it should be pretty obvious that it's that way and it is that way for a lot of stuff in my life. It just weirdly wasn't with that part of content creation. So it, it's funny. That's my always improving moment. I think that pretty often, if you listen to the show for a long time, a lot of the hosts, I, I don't know what we're up to, like 42 now, will have those moments where they will say, I had to relearn this lesson. And it, I've actually heard poker players say that a lot as well. And I, I don't know if the correlation between poker and magic is that, or if it's just part of learning. Like, no matter what you're going to learn, you have to learn it again and again. Because you have to learn something so many times to like for it to release again. Or maybe it's just about developing habits. But I think it's really interesting to kind of look at like you knew that you wanted to create the type of stuff that you wanted to consume. And you also know that you want magic to be a creative outlet for you. But somehow something got crossed the wires and you had to relearn it. And I think that that is really important for listeners to realize that like that's going to happen to them a lot too in anything that they learn non-linear progress like that and like i think it happens in magic and i think in poker too like in a gameplay wise not even like about like you know how you feel about what your plans are for this content and stuff like reconnecting with things that you kind of forget while focusing on other things is just you know there'll be times where you're too busy focusing on certain aspects of things to uh remember the things you've learned in the past about others that's just super uh it's like a really big overarching thing i think in just a lot of things in life very good observation um, my always improving this week was uh, a relearned lesson for sure. The Mana Traders uh, like end of month tournament was this weekend, and decklists were like due on Friday. I hadn't really had much time to play Modern because I've had um, a lot of things going on in my personal life, 
And so I was like, well, I could play like Hammer, which I'm very comfortable with, but it sounds like a lot of people are kind of gunning for Hammer still. Or I could Audible and play something like Burn, which seems better against maybe the anti-Hammer decks I'm also comfortable with. And I was like, just really ready to register Burn. I had pulled a Burn list that I like like the looks of, a player I like trusted. And I like submitted it for Manitraders and I was looking at it. And I was like looking at the Hammer list and I was like, what am I doing, man? Like, am I not willing to bet on myself enough or like confident enough in myself to play this deck that I've put so many hours in with, I win so much with, just because I'm like afraid of uh of like a few bad matchups or like i don't even know what the metagame is going to look like per se so uh i wound up switching back to hammer and really like being confident in myself that i was going to be able to perform despite you know i was like expecting to probably not get much sleep because my sleep schedule has been out of whack and like I, I was like so down on myself but i was willing to say like dude you shouldn't be down on yourself you should trust yourself that you're going to be able to to play this deck and do well and i wound up breaking in ninth uh theme of the show this month i know right what are you guys doing um not getting eighth that's for sure we're built different what can i say yeah, we're built you know, different. i say eight people yeah, make eight top eight correctly <laughs> one one person gets ninth eight people make top eight way more impressive i think uh so true. I, I need your help Abe, because this historically has actually been a huge problem for me where i will talk myself off the thing that i know that i'm good at and then i like uh to avoid I don't. I don't even know the right word. Like, it's not embarrassment. It's like, okay, Spencer, you it's know, just cold to, feet. It's I, just how do you how do you get out of the negative self talk cycle once you've entered it in Magic, especially right before a tournament? So for this one, uh, <laughs> I had posted a message in the. Uh, in Did Mason slap you with a fish? Is as, that what happened? No, it was a formal, <laughs> formerly known as Hivevine Discord of like a bunch of the Magic Online players, and I asked which one of these two decks do you think is a better choice to play, uh, like playing Burn or playing Hammer. And Dom Harvey just responded with like, a, he just asked this question of like, are those like really your only two options? Like what's, like obviously like a weird question to ask because you would think, and I like explained my situation and he didn't even really say anything else, but after him just asking me like, what are you doing here, man? Like, why are you asking this question in the first place? Kind of like, is how I read it and how I felt about it. And maybe that's just all me putting it on me. He probably didn't mean any of the things I took from it by it. But just like the subsequent like talk about like oh well hammer is probably like just harder to play than four color you should play four color or whatever if you're like that uncomfortable and I was like man none of these people actually know who I am or like what I'm going through or what I'm good at like I'm the one who knows those things and so what I told myself is that I need to like I, I like felt this little bit of like this was just a weird question asked in the first place I just know what it is I should do and what I want to do and so I chose to play hammer. That's the only things come up with like humans and dredge, like a lot of these coin flip scenarios where it's like this thing looks better on paper, but I kind of feel better about this thing and I have this reason to lean in. And I think it's just about, you know, reminding yourself that you know yourself better than the other people you're talking to do at the end of the day, even if they're people who you trust and you respect, who can tell you when they think that, you know, you're doing something wrong. You've got to be willing to bet on yourself when it comes to playing tournament magic. And so... Be willing My, to place that bet. I had a favorite line that I typed in our show notes today. It has to do with what you just said. I'm just going to read the line in our show notes. It says, you have put in the work, time to trust yourself. And exactly. I, I think that it goes exactly into what you said. Well, that was always an improving segment. Let's move on to the main topic for this week. And that's how to build a sideboard guide. And Spencer, this is your topic. You kind of pitched this one to do for the show. And so I kind of want to throw it to you to start things off. Why this topic 
and kind of walk us through that so we can get into like their nitty gritty of it all. So uh, I think that anyone who's done a lot of content creation of Magic has, and especially if you've ever like posted a deck tech to YouTube or like posted a deck list that got mythic that was kind of spicy or whatever, almost always you'll get Cyborg Guide and no other explanation uh, as a comment on uh, things that you create. And it's such a meme that I think creators have kind of like turned it into kind of a nasty meme. Like we we joke about it a little too much. And I wanted to kind of just like take a step back and put myself in the shoes of like, okay, so you're playing. I mean, I don't play as much magic as these guys. Like I play like, I don't know, 10, 20 hours a week max. Even then, like there, there are weeks where I'm a little lost. So like I think I can put myself in the shoes of somebody that if you are not really engaged, you're like, okay, well, how, what do I do now that I have this list that you think is good? And I, I think that pretty often we also have another scenario, and this is the scenario that I really want to cover, which is you have put in work. You probably have a pretty idea, pretty good idea of what the format looks like, and you just don't know kind of where to go from there. And I think that it's not as hard as people think it is to learn how to create a, their own sideboard guide or even just how to sideboard in general. And, you know, a lot of this for me came from, I don't know about YouTube, but like I've had a lot of sad, bad sideboards in my life where it's like, well, I need enchantment destruction, two naturalizes. I need something for control. So four of this card or whatever. And like, they just, it didn't make any sense. And I think for a lot of people that like look at random lists on the internet, they're like, I don't know what any of these cards are for. And I don't understand what's going on. And I think that we can kind of help with that. And that's kind of why I pitched this idea. And I think it's a good one. It's important. It's one of those things where it's like when you are building your deck and selecting your deck and getting ready for the tournament, sideboard games are the thing you play the most of across the tournament. You will always play a one-to-one split of pre-postboard games. And somehow at times you will go to game three. So you will play more sideboard games than anything else, which I know is kind of a, a funny thing the first time you hear. I know that kind of like, I was like, what? The first time I heard it, but it's true. And it's such an important thing. And there are so many things that have come up along this lines with coaching recently for me that has illuminated this even more so where it's stuff like, I'm going to say this question. I want you to think about this listener. If I asked you how to sideboard with your modern deck or your standard deck of choice versus let's say blue-red control or blue-red Merc tied appropriately, do you know the cards you would bring in after a second or two looking at your sideboard? Okay, the answer is yes, what a good start. Do you know the cards you cut instinctively? Because you should have a rough idea of that already. And you don't even know that part. That is such a huge part of sideboarding. And we're going to get into all this sort of stuff today. But stuff like that just doesn't get thought about. And the process seems much more daunting than it actually is. And that you can go through this and really work it all out. And it will lead to some serious, not only improvement in your gameplay and your winning, but your understanding, I think, about Magic and future matches will get better and you'll be much stronger of a player as time goes on. Uh, I think it's super important. Let's though, let's start with the beginning. And Abe, what is one of the first things that you kind of do or think that people should be doing when they are starting to like create their cyborg guide and create their cyborg plans? You know, the the first thing you've got to consider when you're building your your sideboard notes for a tournament or, or a cyborg guide for a friend or just working on your plans for a deck you're building, you've got to start with knowing, you know, obviously what the matchups you're going to play against are. You can go to MTG Goldfish, look at the top, like, five to ten decks they are being played, depending on the format, you know, really get a 
get a good layout of, of what it is you're going to need to be prepared for, and then go through and look at your sideboard and the cards that you think you want to bring in, the cards you want to take out, but then also go and look at their deck lists, look at, you know, what the opponent is going to be bringing in and changing about their deck, because you don't want to do a classic pitfall of you're sideboarding your deck for the deck they played in game one, when game two is an entirely different game where maybe they, you know, a classic example of this, like maybe a red deck brings brings in some planeswalkers and slows itself down a bit. So you actually want more duresses or negates or something. This counter magic might be better in the post-board games. Things like that come up all the time, or right? the amount of removal you need in a control mirror. Maybe you need to leave some in. You might have a card like Thief of Sanity in the post-board game. So it's really important to evaluate all of the decks you're going to be playing against and, and all of the matchups based on their sideboarded. Yeah, I think that, Mason, you had a really good line when we were putting show notes together on this that I think I put in the show notes, but just that, like, looking at other people's overall deck lists and and their sideboards kind of combined with what Abe said of what kind of deciding what, uh, what the sideboard plan would look like for them will also then align together into what does the matchup look like from the hive mind brain right like if these this is what most sideboards look like and you kind of um project that down a little bit you can say okay well if they're if i think they're boarding in this and i think i'm boarding in this then i think that the matchup looks like this um it's kind of you know as an xyz kind of comparison yeah it, it really is true i think that it's a super important part of sideboarding. We'll get into this a little bit more playing the matches and questioning these sort of things, but you should have a basic understanding or try to get a basic understanding of how a matchup actually plays out. And this is often called like the truth of the matchup or something along those lines of what players will say, where like you'll know the cards that are really important, the key turns and kind of how the game naturally progresses. So like a good example of this is four color money pile versus burn. The burn player is going to try and kill you really quick, and you're going to try to make sure you get to turn five so you can Omnath plus land. And that gains you four life, and typically once that point happens, you have a fetch, and you gain two burn spells worth of life, and they lose. That is typically the truth of the matchup. It's a lot of early interaction, and making sure you don't get run over. That is kind of what matters most of the time. So having that sort of understanding informs the sideboarding and how you're going to do that sort of stuff. And this is true for all of them. And if you don't look at other decks you're not really getting prepared for the format because to play a deck and to know a deck for the format, you need to know how it works and, and interacts with the other decks. And so when you're building your sideboard and building your sideboard plans, if you don't know that the square goes in the square hole, it becomes much harder to actually like do the task, right? I don't like that you used that meme for this podcast and <laughs> I I'm really upset already. <laughs> yeah. But sometimes the circle the goes c- in the, the cylinder goes in the square <laughs> hole too. Um, yeah, exactly. I, but I, you gotta know where to go, right? Like, <laughs> yeah, I mean, like there's, they all go. There's in an the example hole. of this that I think we talked about a lot for the Invitational was like uh, we were playing a lot of Hammer and Merktide like against each other, and at first I was like, well, I'll bring in Pithing Needle for Engineer Explosives only in the matchups where I like only against players who I think like won't respond to my Saga Trigger. I don't think like it's going to be that good if I don't get them because they only have like one or two copies. It's not that good. But to even know that Pithing Needle is like a card that I just want all the time, it took like understanding that, wow, the Merktide decks have really adapted and are playing like 
three copies of Engineer Explosives now in the post-board games for my deck, right? And that's something if I, if you just look at the Murtai deck at first, like, oh, they'll probably try to like Lightning Bolt my thing, counter some stuff. And you wouldn't even think to bring in Pithing Needle, which turns out to be this like incredibly good sideboard card against their entire game plan against you from, from the Hammer side. So it's just really important to like, you know, think about the pivotal cards and turns, uh, you know, the interactions you're trying to take advantage of in, in these post-sideboard games and the way that you're trying to construct your deck to to take advantage of them in those games. I think that one thing that we've done already on this part of the show is kind of highlight, like, top two or three decks in a given format and talk about, you know, how you think about those. But how do you actually compile a list of things that you need to consider for your sideboard, Mason? So, yeah, so the first thing I'll kind of do is, and I'm going to continue to use modern here just because it's the biggest format uh, for players. So bear with me, but like, I'll kind of be looking at trends overall and I'll look at things like, okay, how many decks are realistically and actively using their graveyard, right? So I'll look on like, oh, Hammer has Luris, but okay, not really a thing. Murktide decks obviously delve and rely on the graveyard a lot. The Money Pile decks use their graveyard a little bit. Okay, the Rhinos deck don't really do it. And I'll, I'll kind of go through and look at that sort of stuff. And I'll figure out if I need to be putting points and things that are like really heavy answers, like rest in peace, etc. Assuming my deck can cast that sort of card. And then I'll start looking through and I'll try to find cards that overlap a lot. And I'll try and find things that are solving multiple problems at the same time. So an example of this I think is really good is actually uh, Endurance from the just any green sideboard really, but specifically Money Pile where the four color control decks where endurance serves a couple roles where it's your mill hate because you target yourself. It's graveyard hate and murktide hate because you target them. And it's actually very pivotal against the red black deck because they play the Cantor, which is the pro white creature. And their plan is to kind of like resolve one of those kind of late run you out of cards and hit you a bunch. And it's very hard to actually kill that creature. And so it's like, okay, maybe if I want to get some more points in a couple matchups, I'll look at cards like that. And I'll try and look at cards and really think about how they interact with a variety of decks and a variety of cards. I try to think about how the games play out. So a common thing when I'm looking at sideboards and everything and like trying to build my sideboard actually for a tournament is I'm playing a lot of games out in my head like Turbo Magic style and thinking about how they interact and how these pieces mesh, at least personally. So that's kind of how I do. I don't know if that really answers your question. It, do, it answers it deeper than I was going. I was more like... Sure. I actually think that you brought up a new question in my head for what it's worth, and maybe I'll pitch it to Abe. You can only focus on so many things. Modern is actually a great example of this, where I think that standard you can pretty easily find, uh, and we actually didn't include this in the show notes, and we probably should have. You can find, like, versatile cards that can cover a few spots, whereas, like, sometimes in modern your sideboard has to be really uh, point pointed answers. But I, I am curious, Abe, how you decide... How many problems do you want to solve? How many things do you want to attack? You know, I, I think that that comes down to just knowing what the metagame you're expecting is, right? Like, that's a decision you have to make kind of around the time you're making your deck selection is, like, what are the decks I think are going to be the most popular? And obviously, you know, that's you're never going to get a perfect example of, like, oh, it's going to be... 60% this and 40% these other things. And so I'm going to play against this this but, many times. But if you do, I'll hire you. We can make up some content together. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. If you have that clairvoyant power, that uh, you're living a different life. Is that um, why people are pondering orbs online? Is that what's happening? 
I don't know. No one got that meme? No, it's cool. I, I should swing and a miss. <laughs> yeah. So uh thanks for that, Mason. I'm happy um, to help. <laughs> uh yeah, but you have to pick kind of like what are the kinds of decks you're gonna you're gonna target. An example for me from standard from the invitational was I was playing the uh the blue red turns deck and I knew kind of where my strengths already lied and then I, I knew that the only other decks I really had to worry about were various forms of control decks I need to have a plan for. And so I built my sideboard to have this like go blank Galvanic iteration uh, plan, which was very good against all the decks trying to take a control role against the Epiphany deck and to have a plan of using Leer and Fading Hope and removal spells to answer all of the decks that were trying to commit to the board and play like a bunch of creatures, Nesca's Chariot. Um, and so you can kind of divide the format into the pillars that you expect to play against. Uh, you can divide it into specifically the decks, but it all depends on the format. It's actually really funny thinking about what Mason was saying about four color, how different I approach building my deck with hammer than he does with four color, because his deck is much more reactive and much more about focusing on his deck, having answers for the other decks. And also a little bit, like you're saying about like this, uh, the red black deck with Torok, um, having the right cards to make sure that he's isolated against what people are trying to do to like pull one over on him. For me with Hammer, I have to think about more of just what are the popular interactive spells in the format? What are the ways people are trying to disrupt me? It's just an entirely different framework of thinking and it always varies from deck to deck with what you're playing. Like if you're playing a deck like, a deck like Hammer, you need to be thinking about, okay, how is it I'm going to beat a player who's got a deck full of Solitudes and Furies and force of vigors, or if these are the cards that matter, I've chosen to go with Thoughtseize because you you need to have the information and generate a window for yourself in a lot of your games, uh, and that's the best card for it. But you know, if I was playing something like Four Color, I'm not even thinking about those kinds of questions of like, what are the answers people are playing? It's more about what are the threats and what are like in what matchups am I trying to accomplish a game plan or my opponent trying to accomplish a game plan? Yeah, you're getting a little yeah. into our next point, and before we move on, I would like to bring it back to standard for a second can i um, say one more quick thing oh yeah go yeah go ahead yeah yeah one quick thing i, I love everything Abe said there but the the one other thing i really thought of when spencer asked that question is also to make sure you're picking the types of cards and things that lean into what your deck is doing yes i think a good example of this is char belcher in modern is not like you're not going to want to sideboard and shonda torture defiance like ah my plan for control is to outgrind them your deck doesn't do that sort of thing, so make sure you're picking cards that do what your deck's trying to do. Like, lights out cards that end the game if you have a lot of pressure really quickly, like Stony Silence, for example, are really bad in my deck. And if Abe's deck wasn't an artifact-based deck, they'd be really good, right? And so, like, doing that sort of thing, I think, is super important. So knowing what your deck's role is and not deviating so much from it that your deck doesn't actually function. But it's a classic thing that comes up with Burn, too, right? That, like... You shouldn't play you shouldn't play like a bunch of rest in pieces unless you really need specifically rest in peace because relic of progenitus probably does the same thing but draws you another burn spell things yeah. like that making sure everything's cohesive in the way it plays and picking the right cards is, is really important thank you for yeah i i'd like to actually add to what you just said mason to to bring it back to standard before we talk about understanding your role because understanding your role is our next our next key thing right we're like we're talking about looking at looking at lists and understanding kind of the cohesion of the metagame here but i think that understanding yourself and understanding like a really popular card in, in mono white sideboards 
about two months ago, maybe a little bit less than that, was Sunset Revelry. Revelry. And even I was like super guilty of this. But it actually turns out that you want that card in actually zero matchups, even the mirror, because you if you're far enough behind to play Sunset Revelry, you're going to lose the mono white mirror. Now, that doesn't mean that the card doesn't belong in other sideboards. You just don't want it in mono white. And leaning into what Mason said, it's like, my deck is never trying to do this. Even though this card is inherently powerful, one of the best sideboard cards in the last set, probably, my deck doesn't want it. So it's important to kind of do that. Also, like, if, if your thought was, what do I want for the mirror? I want Sunset Revelry. It means that maybe you ha don't have a clear understanding of what the mirror is going to become about. And looking at, like, what what are they bringing in? If we're both, if we're both bringing in Sunset Revelry in the mirror, neither of us are ever casting a Sunset Revelry. Like, that's just not happening. And I, I think that, like, okay, here's, here's the top decks that won recent tournaments. Here are the decks that I expect that people think have good matchups against those decks. It's kind of the last point that I would like to make on the how to decide what, what you're going to prepare for. Because no matter what we tell you on this podcast, you're going to miss something. Like, I hate to break it to you, you're going to miss something. The pros miss something. Like, you know, obviously, like, it's a meme at this point to bring up the Karn deck, but, like, pros miss stuff. Like... It, it happens because because magic is complex. So, like, don't go into this thinking that we're going to give you, like, the key to unlock the perfect cyber plan and that you will always have an answer for every deck that you come across because the truth is, is, like, even in standard right now, there are, like, eight playable decks. You don't actually have enough sideboard slots to have a very clear game plan for all of them. And in modern, like these guys have said, like, you definitely don't have enough slots to answer all the problems that are going to be presented. So when you think about like, here are the decks that here's the problem I'm trying to present. Here are the problems I'm trying to solve is going to be really important there. But let, let's actually talk about that a little bit more Mason and go into understanding your role. Yeah. So understanding your role is one of the most important things. So we, we, we harped a lot on like looking at deck lists when other people are doing, which I know doesn't sound like fun, sounds like a sign reading homework, but you kind of need to know what they're doing because you need to understand what your role in the matchup is going to be in the game one, but also in the post-board games. If your opponent is, like Spencer said the example, if for some reason mono-white players are all boarding in four Sunset Revelries, you need to know that for the mirror match. Or if you're like a burn deck or you're the, a white mirror, and you need to know that that's how they're going to be positioning themselves so you can take the time to kind of fight through that challenge and prepare plans and know kind of how you want to approach the game. And I think it's super important to kind of talk about how you're going to be approaching this game and kind of how your average games are going to play out. Because by doing that, you know, A, when you get to testing, is this actually happening, which is effective for time usage. But B, you also get an understanding of like the matchup and you're kind of preparing ahead of time uh, without having to put too much actual gameplay in, and you'll be able to sort of assess the matchup and get these understandings for how you're going to be wanting to do things. When you're doing this and the average game plays out, Abe, how do you kind of go through and figure out what's true, what's not? Like, how do you not know you're just, like, getting unlucky versus very lucky? How does that go for you? And when I when I go through, like, the process of, like, just looking at the games play out on paper, like, in my head, I try to look for... A lot of subtle things. Usually, I mostly do this to analyze play draw in in things. Like, wh how are things different when I'm on the play versus on the draw? A big example of this 
that a lot of people might remember if they were playing at this time was the Mardu Vehicles Mirror, where the way the games play out on the play and the draw in the mirror are so drastically different because of Heart of Kieran and Toolcraft Exemplar. Where like you can just look at the deck list and be like, oh, if I'm on the play, I can crew my Heart of Kieran on turn two or on turn three with my Toolcraft, but I can't on, on defense. So, you know, when it comes down to like what it is you're looking for uh, and, and figuring out what the games are about, it, it's back to the truth of the matchup thing you said earlier, right? You have to know what it is you're looking for and what the important interactions are and what the important game states are that you're going towards. And then configure your deck so that you can have more of those than you would otherwise. Can I give an out of magic example of what you just talked about really quick? And it, Absolutely. it might get a little lost on the listeners, but I think that it perfectly describes what you just said. So literally last night, the best K rule player in Smash Ultimate tweeted out that he was thinking of submitting his matchup chart. So in Smash, there's 84 characters. Pros will often like just tell you what they think a given matchup is, whether it's minus two, minus one, even plus one or plus two. And it was very clear that he said he had five minus twos for this character that is before the most recent buffs was considered pretty bad. And one of them that I thought would be a minus two is the, one of the newest characters, um, which is Pyramithra. And my friend Matt Klain questioned that and we instantly just jumped into a game and played it. I immediately three stocked my friend with 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 k rule and afterwards i said this matchup feels really bad and i think for a lot of people they would get stuck on this fact that like oh maybe this matchup is good like i just three out my friend but the thing is is that pretty often like if you understand your role right in this case like i'm a slow like if we compare this to magic k rule is like the slow grindy control deck and this pyramidic character is like red blitz like the literal fastest thing that you can be doing in the entire game and understanding like here's here are the things here are the tools that i have to be those style of decks and go into it with that knowledge even if you're winning because i think so often people think that even when the, the if they're winning it must be a good matchup but i don't think that's true just because you have an understanding of how that matchup should play out does not mean that it's good for you and you are still at a disadvantage if if all things are equal. And I think people need to realize that. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Super big. I think one thing that we're kind of getting to at this point, and it's a little ahead, but I think it's super important. Uh, we're talking about like the turn of the truth, the matchup, and this sort of thing is if you are writing your cyborg guide, right? And like, you know, when real tournaments come back in full force, write your own cyborg guide or whatever. That way you have it on you. You can minimize your thoughts so that when you get to the actual tournament, you've already thought through these plans. And even if you change your sideboard, depending on like how the guy, like on how things go in the previous, in the games or cards you saw that are different from the average list, you kind of preloaded some of the work for you. It's so important. You can do it on arena too. Just have like a word doc or a notepad up. It's totally fine. Like people do it all the time. Uh, you should take advantage of that. You should be able to write a cyborg guide that is explaining the truth of the matchup and kind of what card matters, what are the key interaction points and stuff like that. In the same way that you read a cyborg guide, maybe from like me, or if you go to like Star City Games, or you'll see like, you know, PV put out his cyborg guide. And it doesn't need to be to the same thoroughness and quality or something like that, that like you'd accept for someone like Paulo. But you should have a basic understanding and be able to tell someone like a homie's like, like, hey, what is kind of like the truth of this match I'm about to play at playing for top eight? And you should be able to tell them that that way, because 
you'll actually have a better understanding of the matchup. And if you're having a hard time formulating thoughts about what's good in the matchup and stuff like that, that might be a place where you want to be spending extra time while working on sideboarding uh, and working on these guides sort of things to actually like go in and learn more about these decks. Because if you're writing a sideboard guide, even if you think the, the cards you're bringing in and out are both good and bad, if you're having a hard time explaining what's going on in the matchup, it might be because you're actually lacking some knowledge there where you're having a harder time visualizing those games. There should be something you kind of need to work on a little bit. So I, I think that is super important. And it gets into our next thing of challenging your beliefs when you're writing down your cyborg guide. One thing that I think is super important and it happens a lot. It happened about like the title of this episode of the show is if someone says something, even if you're like on the other side of the beginning, you should be challenging yourself and listening to what they said about like, the the thing in question so an example might be i think mono green is really good against mono white actually and you might be on the other side of it you might be like no mono white beats mono green you know that's so easy and then you should listen to what they say we should also try to devil's advocate a little bit and kind of question yourself and question your own beliefs about it and see if you could poke holes in your own argument because you need to find out what the truth is it doesn't matter who's right or wrong and this thing, it matters what the truth is so you can get to the best end game for your tournament results. Spencer, is that something that you find yourself struggling with or something you find yourself succeeding with a lot? Oh, yeah. it was. It's funny that you said that exact one because I think it was like week two of the last standard format. I was pretty high on mono green before like it was the most popular thing in the whole world. And mm-hmm. I like I had a friend, a former patron of this podcast, like, I, like, I don't know what to play in standard. I was like, you should just play this mono green list. And then they were like, I have no idea how you beat Mono White. And I was like, I have no idea how you could ever lose to Mono White with this deck. And like they, and then uh, I'm going to call it Andy told him that I, I was wrong and that you couldn't beat Mono White with Mono Green. And I was like, you, you're you both wrong. Like, it is a good matchup. And I understood what the matchup was about. And I could have clearly articulated it to them. But I, I, I don't know why I didn't. Either way, I, I think that so often we like, Assume that our assumptions are correct, uh, if that makes sense, and then just dismiss everything else. And Sam Black on his podcast really often will talk about how if you are having an experience with something in Magic, he is likely to assume that you're correct. And I think that Sam's point is like that everybody, you know, your experience is valid and you need to both challenge, but... But Sam is saying that he is challenging himself through those other people's experiences, right? So if Andy comes to me and says, Spencer, I think that Mono White is favored against Mono Green, that opens a discourse and we need to have that discourse, right? And then come to an understanding, even if we don't end up agreeing, coming to an understanding of like, I can't tell if you're cracking your neck or saying that I'm dead wrong here, Mason. Cracking my neck. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> for the audio <laughs> listeners that must be great but like you 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 kind of have to even if you're not going to come to a conclusion like i trust andy i believe that andy said what he believed and that we just came from different places on that and you need to be able to just say okay here's what i believe the matchup is about here's how i'm playing it and then understand where the other person is coming from I think that is like one of the most important skills you can have as magic players trying to grow. And especially as you start to work with other people who are also good magic players and who, you know, maybe you're always winning at your local scene. You're always winning in the leagues on magic online. Your friend is also always winning from the other side and has this exact opposite experience. It becomes very important to be able to break down what it is you're experiencing with each other so that you can talk about what the truth is 
more so than what your feelings about it are based on your experience because your experience is only your one viewpoint and maybe your opponents aren't doing something that you know someone's doing from the other side of the matchup and that's why it's so important uh when you're when it comes to building a sideboard guide and comes to understanding what your plans are for matchups to look at things through other people's eyes looking at it through instead of just watching if you're going to play monogreen in the tournament instead of watching you know eight hours of VODs of successful monogreen players, maybe playing the arena open or something, maybe go and find two or three people who played mono white or who played blue red turns and watch their VODs too. So you can understand what their thought process is. The people who are also succeeding doing other things from you also have very important viewpoints to understand. And that's always the case uh, across all things in magic. It's something that really separates people. I think who like the people who can do that really grow to go from a point of being really good magic players to great magic players. And I think the people who struggle with that have a hard time until they can adjust to, to looking at other viewpoints like that. I, I super agree. It reminds me of the classic Ellen Bogan quote of magic is a game where we will never have enough information and you have to come to conclusions on astronomically small data. And so having these conversations and getting this insight into people's minds they are thinking about these things too. They are having thoughts about these things and knowing that and learning how they're thinking, like we've said, even if you don't, you ultimately end up not agreeing with them, maybe at the end of some of the conversations is super helpful and it will help enlighten you and let you learn these things. It's why one of the best ways to get better at magic is to talk to people who play a bunch of magic and like have these deep conversations because it's going to help you turbocharge your time. If me and Abe both spend eight hours critically thinking about stuff and we come in from different spots, we're now having a combined like 16 hours of it, right? It's like why these hive mind things are so successful. And I think that's super important. And it's, it's honestly like why we put this ask around in our show notes here is like one of the main topics, because you should be asking like the people who are playing the tournaments, people outside of the tournaments, looking at the results going into these sort of things and kind of getting an all around perspective because you need to know not only trying to figure out the truth, the matchup, and like what you should be doing, what you should be bringing in, but also the way others perceive it is pivotal to your success. You know, if everyone thinks like the matchup is about a certain thing and it really truly isn't, and you're actually for hundred percent have that information, which happens a lot in the beginning of standard formats, you get these huge, huge edges, especially when you can sideboard out cards that are trying to target you that ultimately maybe just don't end up mattering. And now you've gotten rid of some small percentage where, you drew a couple of those, they drew the right car, and you drew one too many lands, and now you've lost. And it's like, well, I could have actually sideboarded this stuff out, brought on these other cards, and bam, I got a big edge. And so that sort of stuff is actually, I think, super, super important. And we you know we mentioned this hive mind. It's kind of like the idea of like a Discord where people talk about stuff, but also listening to content creators and just reading what people are saying is so pivotal, I think, to kind of get in the mindset because people that our content creators really do kind of shape part of the metagame for a, a certain percentage of players. I don't think it's the largest part, but it is a part of the metagame. It gets shaped by things like Koi Bymeister out here saying Shadow is the best deck in modern, not close. You know, like things like that and having people like Brad back him up does impact and it should shape how you view things. Because even if maybe in the abstract, in the vacuum, if we had perfect information that wasn't true, people are going to show up with shadow and people are going to do that sort of thing. And they're going to have more shadow hate some percentage because of stuff like that. And so you really need to get into the headspace and kind of looking at that and really kind of tapping into content creation. 
Spencer, what were some of the ways that you did that when it came time for things like Grand Prix, PTQs, Pro Tours, when it came time to like looking in for events? Yeah, I, I think that like kind of viewing the way that people are going to react to different things is, is really important. And I, I also think that it can be hard, like it can be kind of daunting for people because, you know, you don't know where you want to end up, right? So uh, we'll, we'll use, uh, we'll, let's actually use Corey as an example here. Where, you know, Corey does well with this deck. He and Brad say that it is one of the best decks of Modern. And now it's like, okay, well, even if I disagree with this, I now have to consider it because of how this can shape things moving forward. Uh, I actually did a really bad job of this once, and I'd like to use that as an example of when I was playing on Arena before a Grand Prix for Denver, and I was on Team Elementals, and I was crushing everything. And then all of a sudden I played against this Bant Scapeshift deck and got obliterated. Like, absolutely obliterated. And I was like, well, that was the best thing I've played against in Standard in a long time. But, like, I had put in so much, so many hours that I, like, didn't think much of it. And a little bit later, I show up to the Grand Prix. I ask my friend Caroline what she's playing. She's playing this Bant Scapeshift deck and it's like, oh my gosh... I wish I had pulled the trigger on that also. And then, you know, Bantscape Shift happened to be, like, the best deck in that standard format by a substantial margin. And I, I think the lesson to be learned in all of this and on how you sideboard is could could I have made concessions for Scape Shift in my deck or that I think nobody else would figure it out? And I, I think that, like, this is this is not a question that we can answer on the podcast as far as, like, how many people are going to take what Corey says and apply it? We can't tell you that answer. That is like earlier in the show, Abe, you mentioned like you just have to make a decision. And that's this is one of those times. Like, Mason, I'm going to call you out. Do you think that Death Shadow is the best deck in modern? No, I think it's terrible. Okay. I think how it's much respect, bad. How much which respect would you give to Death Shadow? Uh, I like spent a little more time thinking about than probably would have if it wasn't a Grand Prix. And I ultimately decided that my deck was already really good against it. Sure. But I did consider adding cards for that sort of matchup. Like right. an extra pass to exile type thing. And like you get to live with that decision, right? But like if you go copy somebody's sideboard guide, you don't get to live with any decision other than the fact that you copied a sideboard guide. Right? Like that you have lived with somebody else's decision. Maybe that's easier for you, but you've taken you've taken control away from yourself. And I think that mm -hmm. the important part here is by taking the time to consider these things and how somebody like Corey does impact the metagame gives you the control back. Yeah, always always taking the time to put your own beliefs out there and follow them. Even if you think that, you know, maybe Corey does know better than you about the modern format as a whole. And if you play Grixis Shadow like he plays Grixis Shadow or follow his cyber guide, you might have a better result in the short term. But I promise you, you will learn a lot more by following your own beliefs, assessing what went right and what went wrong at the end of it when it comes to building your plans or playing a deck uh, than following blindly the content creators who also are posting about the same deck. And so it's really important to kind of do both, I think to spend time learning from the people who are spending a bunch of time playing these decks and putting out content to explain to you, you know, and teach you things about your deck. Uh, but also to balance that with your own 
beliefs and your own view on things and putting in the time, that pays dividends beyond just one tournament. That pays dividends to your understanding of a format. That pays your dividends and your understanding of magic as a whole. And also just to, you know, there's so many lessons that I've learned from the mistakes I've made in like doing things that just sound sound completely ridiculous to me now, but I didn't realize at the time that I would have never learned if I was just every weekend copying a deck out of an article and playing it because that's just, that's only going to be as good as that information is. And I'm never going to know everything that goes into that, or I'm not always going to agree with everything that goes into that. And I'm going to be playing someone else's game plans and not my own. This kind of gets us into the finalization of things. We've kind of talked about how you need to be taking a look at what other people are doing. And this is kind of the first step when finalizing your sideboard. There will be narratives. There will be things that are pushed. There will be things that are being said. And you need to look at those sort of things and make sure you're challenging your own beliefs there. But also your sideboard isn't, you know, walking into a bunch of people switching into that sort of stuff. You know, for example, let's say Force of Vigor becomes the best card or whatever to have in a sideboard. You don't want to be sideboarding in extra artifacts and enchantments if your deck's already weak to those cards if people are ticking up on that sort of thing try to look for a card that may be like a good example is void mirror versus hushbringer as an answer to elementals it's like okay everyone's playing for force engagement now maybe i want the hushbringer so that i can dodge this sort of card they're bringing in for me uh, and make the matchup a little bit better you want to make sure you're doing that sort of thing and then you also want to make sure that like you're not overstressing it, which kind of sounds like a funny thing to say. But one thing I'll, I'll often say a lot is that the 15 sideboard slot is kind of where you want to put your points. Because what ends up happening is a lot of times is people have like the first 13 or 14 sideboard slots really figured out, ironed out, they're happy with it. And they're like, oh, this last sideboard slot, I don't know what I'm supposed to do. And the truth is, is that like, especially for a format like Modern, which is such a popular format, it's going to be hard to plan for everything. So picking a matchup or a type of deck or a thing that you don't want to lose to and giving yourself a couple extra percentage points there, assuming it's cohesive with your deck, can go a very, very long way. I think a good example of this was my money pile list going into Vegas. I knew my 15th sideboard slot was going to be Emrakul the Promise End because I knew that I wanted to have extra points in the mirror match and I wanted to have a little extra points against Control, which was already a good matchup. I wanted to make sure I'm not losing my good matchups. And so it's like, okay, this card's good in only two matchups, but it's a matchup that I don't want to be losing. And when I played the Money Pile Mirrors, I was the only one playing Emrakul. And Emrakul just won me my matches because it is such a strong hammer. And I chose to have those points. And without Emrakul, I definitely don't make a deeper run as I could have. And maybe I, you know, things go totally differently. But you just have to kind of choose it and be happy and satisfied with that. And then the last thing I kind of want to ask y'all about is how hard is it to put trust in yourself uh, when it comes to the final way of just kind of signing off from the cyborg? Because you two kind of mentioned this at the beginning of the show. And Spencer, I want to start with you because you said this is something that you kind of struggle with at times. Yeah, I mean, I used to be really good at this. Like, I used to be able to stake my flag in the ground, explain my thoughts really well, and, you know say what I believed and I, I think that you know I think that it can be hard sometimes I I think that this is probably a goal of mine in 2022 is to be able to do this exact thing again and you know I, I when I do this I typically do really well at events so you know whether it's you know the the time I qualified for the pro tour whether it's you know the, the SEG events that I've cashed the GPs that I've cashed, the, you know, all, all of those 
high level events like it's typically because i am confident in where i'm at um and i have still taken others into consideration i don't know it's like a it's like a balancing act but i think the truth is is that uh i don't know where this is at in the show notes but i i, I it's something michael hinderocker used to say the hinder father blessed to be his name you know that having your plan and understanding your role and your idea in a matchup is so much better than not understanding somebody else's plan and or just not having a plan at all. And I think that if you do these things, you're going to you're going to get pretty close to to what is optimal for you. That doesn't mean it's optimal, but it, it is what is optimal for you. Agreed. Plan beats no plan every time. Always. Abe, do you have any final thoughts on this as we're wrapping this up? Yeah, I think that to to circle back around to that question of like, how do you trust yourself? And this is why I, I noticed that I get a lot less confident when I'm not able to engage with magic to the degree that I have in the past. You know, I'm just busy before a tournament, don't have time to prepare. Is that I'll question myself and worry that I'm not prepared enough. And that takes away from my trust that I usually have myself when I feel really good. There's plenty of tournaments where I walk in, I'm like, wait, I just know that my deck is perfect. I did all this work. And I feel like I feel good about my conclusions. It, it's kind of like when you take a test in school and you you turn it in and you know you're going to get an A. That's that feeling that I'm always chasing after when it comes time to submit my deck. And that I know that I've already, I've done all the work. I know all the answers. I know this stuff like the back of my hand. And so I'm comfortable with everything I just wrote down and everything that I'm I'm there to do. And the rest is just about, you know, going into the tests, which is the tournament and doing it all right from from my end a lot of great ways to build trust in yourself and confidence but for me the best way is to uh is to put in that time and effort invest it for yourself there's also you know there are times where you get it wrong i've had many tournaments where i've been like yeah this is gonna be the most popular deck i'm gonna devote three sideboard slots to it like i played i played hollow one and i went i started 8-0 at grand prix hartford i went undefeated on day one and I was like, the whole night before was like, I don't think I can beat the humans matchup. Humans is going to be the most popular deck. It's so unfavored. I'm going to play three Torpor Orb. And I brought in Torpor Orb zero times in that tournament because there were 15 rounds. I just played against humans no times. Things like that happen a lot. And you know, what? the lessons I've learned from that is to play, at least for myself, play broader cards. Don't worry about the case, like those specific niche cases so much because they just don't, at least in modern, they don't come up. And so now I always feel more comfortable uh, you know, kind of, it, it's all a process. You always grow as a player every time you do these things. And so that trust just comes from that effort you put in over time, I think. Uh, th- those are really my my final thoughts. I don't know if anyone else has anything else to say before we pitch the patron question. My final thoughts, I just want to quickly wrap, if I can quickly wrap up, Mason. Yeah. Um, so just to, just high level, I'm, I'm also going to start posting show notes uh, in the Discord for those who kind of want to see what we're working off of when we kind of have these these conversations. But look at stock lists. Understand your role. Uh, challenge your beliefs. And then finalize, you know. Take the time to, like, really write down your thoughts. Really finalize finalize those beliefs and, and solidify them before an event are kind of the four steps that we highlighted today. And if you can work on these sort of things, it will lead to huge dividends. Just try to figure these things out and you will not always succeed you might not even succeed the first couple times but just keep at it 
and it will come with time and from listening to stuff like this and reading other things and it will lead to some big dividends that is it for our main topic this week on the show of writing your own cyborg guide if you want to support the show you can check out our lovely sponsors at the top of the show and you can also check out patreon.com slash ccmtg the show will always be free you get some benefits you get to see like the show notes stuff like that you get to see what we're playing in tournaments cyborg guides stuff like that you get to also ask us questions. And you see, this week we didn't get a question about magic, but a patron did ask me. I'm wanting to get into anime, and I don't know what my first anime should be. And since we didn't get a magic one, and this was technically a patron, although one-on-one, I am curious what your two's recommendations are. And I will go first. Stay, I'll give you guys a little bit of time. I love Death Note. I think Death Note is one of the greatest animes ever, and that's my default. But I'll give a backup one since I've done that one before on the show. And I think Haikyuu is a great show. It's about a volleyball player who really wants to play volleyball. He's kind of short, which if you don't know anything about volleyball, not a great place to start. But it's an inspirational team story. And if you like things like competitive magic, you will probably like Haikyuu. That's my elevator pitch for the show. Abe. If you had to pitch someone who's wanting to get an anime, what would be the first one of the first animes you recommend for them? I would say to skip Death Note because I think it gets kind of bad pretty quick. Well, Abe's off the show. Spencer, <laughs> what was your? But uh... I would say I would say uh, similar to the vein of Haikyuu, which was one of the first ones that popped in my head. I would say um, Hajime no Ippo. It's very long, uh, like it's kind of like a slower paced uh, '90s anime, but it's about boxing. It's about this kid who uh, like finds the like his passion in life through boxing and it's all this realistic stuff about this process of growth and everything super great anime super dope to watch all the all the like boxing matches are super hype and insane it's it's a really good show so i have answered this question a lot before and usually my answer is og dragon ball as like the baseline for like this is what anime kind of starts as for a lot of people or sometimes i'll say like g gundam or stuff like that but i actually have a new answer and I've realized that if you want somebody to enjoy something, like they, you should give them something a little bit more current. And I think that I would probably actually just recommend My Hero Academia at this point. Just like if you want to get into anime, uh, it starts off like pretty tame. Like the first season to two seasons are like, you know, they're anime. Uh, and then like it gets pretty gritty and dark and like you get into a little bit of the darker side of anime not like you know not not like like i wouldn't i would not recommend neon genesis evangelion as like your first anime i might no you should not uh <laughs> but like i actually think that my hero is a really good starter anime and oh yeah i think i think it's like the most like relevant shonen right now oh, as yeah. far as like setting, yeah. setting what the rest of things look like afterwards super super modern yeah i i would say that if you didn't want to do a shonen anime that haiku would be the the other one that i would recommend and i've only watched like five episodes of that anime and i already know that like oh you gotta you gotta you gotta get to recent i gotta get to recent haiku is a shonen though that's the secret is it really yeah it's just a volleyball shonen it's just a shonen anime it's not it's not shonen though right because it's not in shonen jump it is is it in shonen jump yeah I didn't know that. I didn't. You learn yeah, something yeah, every day. Yeah. Haiku is just a shonen, but it's just uh, shonen. By also, the way, if you're listening, is like a type of anime. It's a subgenre, like drama. Well, it's but, uh, it's like tournament arc style 
like yeah yeah the volleyball all right all right i see i see what's happening i'd also say demon slayer demon slayer is off the that thing is off the chain so good yeah i i think that for what it's worth i know that a lot of people actually told me um just for listeners of the show that i the reason that i've watched the first five episodes is because of listeners of the show that said hey um i know that always improving and like that style of belief is really important to you and if you have not watched haiku this anime really resonated with me because of your show so like if you like this show kind of like mason said you will probably like that anime yeah it's actually criminal that you haven't finished yeah i'm I'm (laughs) (laughs) hey yeah i'm watching it with my wife so like we watch it we watch it together and you know we all make excuses it's fine it's not an excuse i i it is important to me that I I fulfill that with her as it was something we wanted yeah. to watch together. Oh yeah, you'll get to it. No worries. Last recommendation before I go: Moriarty the Patriot. No one ever talks about this show. I keep bringing it up. I'm gonna tell it to the listeners, so maybe one of them will watch it and we can talk about it. But basically, <laughs> the show is you're watching it. You're it's Moriarty from the Sherlock Holmes stories, but he is the protagonist of the story because you see Moriarty is trying to take down the ruling class of the Britain, and Sherlock's actually accidentally maintain the status quo which hurts people and so you actually watch it where sherlock is the bad guy and it's so good and everyone say goodbye to a for his last episode on the show uh for insulting death Note. i can't believe you say it gets bad real quick when the first 28 episodes are goaded and the last 12 are bad but abe as your last goodbye on the show where can people find you going forward since you won't be here next week uh, you can find me here each and every week wow. <laughs> uh, and you can find me on twitter at more nothings Awesome. Spitzer, where can people find you? Yeah, you can find me in the He's a Game Media Discord, the CCMTG Discord uh, for the Patreon, where you can ask questions like this. Like, uh, you know, a- any question is totally fine for the show. We'll we'll find a way to tie it back into the show and, in, and into magic. Um, you can find me on Twitter at Spencer13H. You can find me every other week on the Need to Nerd podcast. We're talking about Brilliant Diamond Shining Pearl uh, next week because... I am going to the Pac-12 championship game in Vegas this week, so we won't be able to record this week. So, Ooh, that's exciting. I didn't know that. Have fun there. You can find me each and every week here on Constructive Criticism. You can find me on Twitter at Mason D. Clark. You can find me on YouTube at Mason Clark. And you can find me on Card Kingdom each and every week writing about standard or historic. This week we're going to be talking about some decks that are actually a little bit under the radar. Some sleeper cool decks in the format. So if you're looking for something to kind of play for fun, make sure to check that out. And of course, my DMs are always available for coaching for the sleep free to slide on in there. Thank you all so much for listening to this week's episode of Criticism. Make sure to check out the rest of the network. We have Drafting Archetypes with Sam Black, one of the best limited podcasts out there right now. If you're trying to step up your game for limited or get ready for the limited arena open, which is this week free to enter, you're going to want to check out Sam's podcast the last couple of weeks. He is doing one of the best things when it comes to limited content. It's right here on the network from the CCMG feed. Just scroll down and you'll see it. We also have Common Knowledge when it comes to Popper. You're going to check them out. You're going to play those Popper challenges to get ready. The cheapest, most affordable format in magic and of course homeward path for everyone who's on the parent grind and we will see you all next week for another episode of constructed criticism